back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Today, Phil Haberkern of Boston University is back to discuss an important brand chapter. This one was fun because early on, Phil's kind of ho-hum about brand, and then by the end of the chapter, I have him fully converted. After that, my friend Podrick McCarran joins me. Just a quick shout out to the boys at Bald Move who are doing fine work covering Ahsoka and The Walking Dead Daryl Dixon. Be sure that you check out everything that's going on at baldmove.com. Without further ado, here is Dr. Phil Haberkern. Let me ask you this about Bran. Do you find Bran an interesting character? No. Um, <laughs> that, that's not fair. It's not It's not so much Bran as I will admit when you when we first talked about doing this chapter, I, I find the Winterfell specific storyline in this book to be kind of my least favorite part because so much else is happening in a sort of politically rich uh-huh. conflict among the Brathian brothers and the, the Lannisters right. and Rob Stark. And that is like, building, building, building in this moment. Right. And, you know, we have Jon Snow north of the wall and we're sort of, that's kind of approaching a first crest. And every time we divert to Winterfell, I'm like, okay. Like, is this the issue of the reader being smarter than the character in the story? Because oh. I feel like for astute readers, we know Brand's a warg. Like, even if this is our first read. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, we saw the clues. We saw them chapter one. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we and now we're like yeah, mid book right. and we've been reading the clues all along and we know that Bran is working into summer. But of course, Bran doesn't know this yet. And so it's sort of a slow burn of his, you know, the the waking of his third eye, um, as Joe yes. calls it, right? And I think there's some of it that feels like maybe it's too slow a burn. I don't know. What do you think? I, I think it could be sped up a little bit, or maybe it's even just all of the sort of political and military kind of background to this chapter, where we have, you know, Boltons and Lady Hornwood huh. and, you know, the, the threat of the Iron Islanders. Right. And so even as we want Bran to go on this journey of self-discovery to become, you know, this green seer along with a warg, it almost feels like all of the extra stuff around it is distracting us from that central heroic journey. So maybe it's almost if we streamlined the focus to Bran, I would be more satisfied and maybe practically it would speed it up. But it's for me, it's a lot of the the extras around the edges of the early brand story, you know, where I want him in intense, you know, training sessions with Jojen, trying to figure out how to open this eye or, you know, (laughs) long talks with Asha. Or is it? Do you say Osha or Asha? I always said Asha. I, you know. I could do it. Yeah. I could be doing it wrong. But I want, you know, she, she's parceling out information that's really useful and helpful and meaningful, but they're never just sitting down and having a long talk. So I guess it's, I, I'm with you. I, because I, I, I interpreted your sense that this could be sped up a little bit. I would like to get to Bran as fully or somewhat fully developed Worgen Greenseer as opposed to the sort of stumbling forward. 
Yeah, and I think that the trick is if he does speed it up, maybe he doesn't seem authentically 10 years old or was he how old is he supposed to be? I should he's know nine or ten. Yeah. That's actually a, that's a good point. So that, yeah, I think he's a, yeah, I think he is like nine or something like that. Yeah. So I think maybe this is a reread issue. I think most of the chapters are really rewarding on reread. Like I, you know, I'm mm-hmm. just reading through you know the the cat chapter where the shadow creature kills oh, Renly, yes. and there are so many details that I didn't remember, and it's just so interesting and. This book right now is ramping up, like you say. Yes. Um, I don't know. You know, not every element of the book can be rewarding on reread. Um, Not to say that they're not important elements because they tie the story together. But at the same time, like going back to this to this chapter, rereading it and then seeing the way it's treated in the show Uh where it's wildly different than it is in the book, um, even down to who has the dream of Winterfell um, going underwater, which is kind of remarkable. I found a lot in this chapter, which is sort of the, despite my saying earlier that I don't love the brand story, I found a lot in this chapter that was just super, super interesting. And this goes back to all of these different kinds of religious systems that are sort of coexisting in the world of Westeros and Essos. But at the same time, there is this bedrock conviction here that is borne out in prophecy and the idea that certain people can see the future and that the future is immutable. That is just, that is totally fascinating to me as a sort of foundational kind of metaphysical concept in this world. Yeah. Even though Bran is a little bit frustrating as in terms of his character development, this chapter is some, does some really interesting things with, determinism and fate and not only like like even if you do go in for Jojen's view of what green dreams are we kind of know in retrospect that or at least I think I know in retrospect that it still takes the prophet to interpret these things and the prophet Mm -hmm. is valuable right so yes and that is just like that idea like the metaphorical dream that will come true but you won't understand how it's coming true until after the fact yeah. it's just so <laughs> deeply embedded not just in the sort of western literary mythological uh-huh. sort of tradition but globally that i guess it's it's the most interesting question that comes up that came to me out of this chapter is you know what what offers that certainty right it's not providence in a in a Christian sort of all all omniscient deity sort of sense, it might be fate, which I think is the word you used. It could be something like destiny. It could be some one of these divine pantheons mm-hmm. that inspires the person to see into the future. We don't know exactly what underpins that, but it's almost like a bedrock. Hmm. It's a bedrock belief here that we see born out, at least in the case of the green dreams. And it helps to have a character like Jojen who just mm-hmm. is, he's so certain. Like, he's, his, his faith is just unshakable. Yes. Um, and to have him as a foil against Mira, uh, mm-hmm. 
who I think may be the older and wiser of the two, but I think is sort of I'm not, I'm not sure how to read her her voice in these things. Um, well, it feels like she's protecting her brother. She doesn't. I don't know if she just doesn't like the prophecies that will result in eventual pain or mm-hmm. whether or not it's sort of like, no, philosophically, none of this makes sense unless you can have some kind of control over your own fate. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how to read what she's doing in this chapter. Um, it's interesting because I, I, I totally think you are dead on that. She seems to really, the idea that there's no agency there's no choice. There's no ability to change the outcome is clearly frustrating to her. Mm-hmm. But there's also a very pragmatic element of, hey, if you go and tell people that they're going to die, they just won't believe don't you. expect to thank you. Don't <laughs> expect to thank you, um, which makes me believe, you know, that her brother must have walked that path before, you know, and, and shared his dreams in this I with the expectation sure. that he would be helping people or maybe she just um, knows instead, the way the world works it's like well there is that too. you know people if you tell people that the ocean's going to collapse on winterfell they're not going to believe it because that's not the way the world works um she's fascinating to me let me read the let me read the, my synopsis here we talk more about this absolutely While assisting Micken, the blacksmith, Bran is alerted that King Rob has sent a letter. The unfortunately named Alebelly carries Bran to Maester Lewin. Together with Rickon and the Frey boys, Bran learns of the Battle of Oxcross and that Severon Frey is dead. Later on, Jojen discusses dreams with Bran, who is now a believer in green dreams. Jojen tells Bran two of his dreams. First, the ocean will come to Winterfell. Second, a man named Reek will kill and flay both Bran and Rickon. So, I mean, my feeling is that the dreams are like the most interesting thing about this chapter. We're already talking about it. Why don't we just keep talking about that for a bit? Okay. Although I will say, I, the, and I can't, I couldn't recall when I was rereading this and sort of doing a little prep work for our conversation. Is this the first time we get clarity on warging and this idea of sharing consciousness with an animal in like a in an, in a clear and explicit way? So it's interesting. I think in the last brand chapter, Jojen kind of explains what a warg is to Bran. Mm-hmm. Bran in turn goes to Lewin, and Lewin explains to him that there are stories and let me tell you what these stories they you know different kinds of people used to be able to take control of the bodies of animals and all and birds and fish and things like that so i think that there has been some kind of exposition on this but the specific naming of brand hey you are a warg this is the chapter where that happens okay because that's another sort of, again, it's, that's such a, there are so many folkloric and mythological variations on that theme that are so interesting. And the way Martin sort of pieces together the limitations and the powers of the wargs in this particular context, it's it's sort of, to me, one of the, a really good, subtle example of how accomplished he is. Yeah. 
and and interweaving different kinds of yeah. uh, influences and elements. Um, so I so maybe we can circle back to to humans and animals. I would love to do that. I actually have a few questions about that. I want to read this sure. one line from this is this is what Mira says. Mira thought so too. Later that night, when she and Jojen met Bran in his room to play a three-sided game of tiles, but her brother shook his head. The things I see in green dreams can't be changed. That made his sister angry. Why would the gods send a warning if we can't heed it and change what is to come? I don't know, Jojen said sadly. So a couple assumptions here. I guess Mira's thinking about this theologically. Yes. Green dreams are from the gods. Um, and then the second is they are a warning. To me, that kind of passes the smell test. Mm-hmm. Um, prophecy has a long history in religious, you know, religious tradition, and they, it doesn't usually exist just on its own. It's not like the universe is trying to tell me something. That's a very modern concept. It's usually attributed to some kind of god, and it's usually used as a warning of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, is that your sense of it? That's a, a good starting point. Okay. So question is, in Martin's world, is it right to think of green dreams as visions from the gods? I don't know if we have another choice <laughs> and how to interpret it. Okay. And and I just just in the sense that you know Melisandre or the sort of priests and priestesses of the Lord of Light they're also given ecstatic visions in different ways. Now, she we learn over time is pretty poor at interpreting these, uh, and and very and very determined to interpret them correctly, and it leads down some sort of tragic paths with her. Mm. But I, we're not necessarily given to believe that the visions are false. It's the the failure is an in interpretation. And so I do think that it is one of the sort of underpinning kind of theological ideas in the text that deities in this world can give certain people, choose to give certain people visions of the future that reveal sort of what is to come. Hmm. I think that's a fair statement about this. Well, just within this chapter, we kind of have a proof of concept, right? Because it's like, I don't know if there's a deity involved, but in a previous chapter, Jojen said, look, you're going to get some news, and the Freys mm-hmm. are going to get some news, and their their news is going to be worse than yours, but they're going to like their news better. You know, in, in basic, you know, it's it sort of framed as a meal or whatever, but that's what happens, and that's what gets Bran to think that he knows what he's talking about. I should stop listening yes. to Lewin. Lewin doesn't know what he's talking about. Dreams do come true. Now mm-hmm. I think I see what what Jojen's all about, right? I think that, yes, I think that's also true. What I think is interesting, and this goes back to your original line from Mira, though, is sort of what are the limits of free will and human choice in affecting outcomes? And... Jojen comes down, you know, when he says the dreams come true, there is, you can't change them. And that is true to some extent, but there are still all of these areas around that sort of central 
belief, that central sort of metaphysical idea in this work, that I think still are open to interpretation or are open to alteration. Mm. And we don't, but we don't get a discussion of that. And again, this is, so for instance, you know, in the vision of Winterfell being drowned by the sea, and there are certain men that Jojen sees and he can identify, and there are however many there are, uh, three or five that, that get named. Mm-hmm. But do we know, you know, in the what what's the death toll in the dream versus the death toll in what actually happens? What about are there actions that people take in light of this dream that mitigate some of the outcomes? Um, is there space for human action? You know, would would Brandon Ricken have actually been killed? Hmm. Or, you know, if not for the revelation of this vision. So I think there might be more room between the Jojen and the Mira position, but it's hard to tease out what that is because again, we 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 don't have the theology of the seven or the old gods in this book. <laughs> <laughs> we we don't know sort of what the what the canonical beliefs about these things are. So I think we're just kind of trying to piece it together for ourselves in much the same way that the characters are. Yeah, I feel like Jojen probably he shouldn't feel as certain as he does mm-hmm. that he knows how to interpret these things. And I may maybe it's sort of like let's take it at sort of a superficial level. Yes, of course, someone who eventually is named Reek will kill two kids that are sort of named after the fact, Bran and Rickon. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know enough to be able to nuance the dream in that way. Right. And Mel has the same problem. You know, it's like, here's what I saw, and this is what it means. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the sort of that second part, this is what it means, that absolutely doesn't warrant that kind of confidence. But he's confident enough that he's taking action. And the action is moving the plot of this book in such a way that, you know, ultimately pushes Bran. I guess what I'm saying is that I think we should trust Jojen. I think that the book is telling us to trust Jojen. Yes. And yet it's also telling us to sort of like the green dreams are indeed true, but then the interpretation of the truth is going to be a problem. Exactly. There's a limitation to it. And it calls for a certain amount of like almost humility in terms of being so confident that you understand what they mean. Whereas, and you know, again, Melisandre has self-confidence in spades. And in this respect, Jojen does too. And he's got some evidence that what he sees occurs, Yeah, right? That, right. that is not an unfounded belief, but the idea of he understands the full extent of it does sort of drive, you know, drives the action forward, as you say. And I mean, I guess I can't help but think of Oedipus in this oh interesting you know like the man who has a dream uh that he'll kill his father and marry his mother Uh and makes every decision in his life to make that you know to avoid that fate but he can't do it it's unavoidable you can't do it it. and all of these decisions based on the certainty of if i do this if i do a then b cannot happen essentially kind of guarantees that that B happened. So, I mean, that to me is the sort of, you know, that that's maybe the most sort of canonical 
um, kind of prophetic dream text to me. And I, the whole time I'm reading this chapter and thinking about the mm-hmm. visions and then, you know, knowing again, as a rereader, how it all plays out, you know, you, uh, it's, it's very frustrating, but I, I mean that as a compliment, yeah. um, you know, that we can understand or we can foresee to some extent what's coming. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, knowing that efforts to change it or even at this childlike level, you know, ultimately they might mitigate it to some extent, but but it can't prevent these things from happening. OK, I got one more thing to say about dreams then I want to talk about yes. wargs. Um, <laughs> Brandt seems to say that he's got three kinds of dreams. He's got the yes. dreams where he's he's a wolf, right? Mm-hmm. And he's he's actually slipping into you know, the skin of an animal. Um, then he's got dreams of a tree calling him, and there's yes. a three eyed crow in the in that dream. And then there's the dream of him falling. And I don't know if this works out perfectly, but you could frame it as the wolf dreams are happening now. Yes, the tree portends something in the future. And mm-hmm. the falling is something in the past. So I don't know if that's, that was a sort of intended to sort of kind of foreshadow some of the timey-wimey elements of the later story. Or it could be that I, I'm, I may be foisting a, a past, present, future paradigm on this because I find that mm-hmm. more interesting. What do you think? I think that makes sense. I mean, yes, you are, you know, on, on one level, that's your observation is just, it, it, it tracks, right? Like this past trauma, the sort of current, what is my wolf doing? And then the future, the sort of calling of what he's supposed to do and what he, who he's supposed to become. And then I think you add in a layer that, you know, from the very beginning, there's this demand that brand just fly right that don't fall fly mm-hmm. and that's the way his opening of his third eye because of this particular experience he's had right that's the language that's being used to describe this process of becoming for him it's when he stops falling and starts flying so i think again there's a kind of um there's an interesting like elision and and the way that works in terms of time where this event in the past is also in the future will allow him to open up but i think it, it gets to that idea of experiencing time, not in this sort of linear manner, but as different times coexisting. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's a good, that's right? a good observation. And I guess for me too, I, I will admit, you know, like I'm, I am trained sort of with some theology, but also like religious history. And so when I was reading this and thinking about dreams and, you know, thinking about the Jojen Mira brand sort of conversation about, knowing what will happen and what does that mean for us as as humans and, and the way we engage in the world you know this has been a really vexed question in the history of christianity forever um and you know really since the late roman world especially where you have philosophers who are thinking about you know if we believe in an all-powerful all-knowing all-good god who knows exactly what i will do in a few days does that leave space for free will and you know the this sort of tortuous intellectual answer and it oscillates over time in the Christian tradition is that, you know, God knowing what will happen does not mean that he, that it, the deity elects to cause it to happen. 
Those are human choices. Knowing the end result, because God exists outside of time and experiences past, present, and future all as a sort of, as a unity, you know, there is the sense that Again, knowing is not causing. And that's, I think, very difficult to sort of wrap our brains around. But it feels a little bit like that's what's happening with Bran's dreams and the way he ultimately will learn to experience time as this, again, this sort of unity as opposed to a linear progress. And so I think we're getting the first inklings of that, as you say, in the three kinds of dreams because his conscious mind can't process it yet. Mm. Well, and to give Jojen a bit of credit, you know, Mira asks him this theological question, like, why would the gods act this way? Mm-hmm. And he just kind of laments, I don't know. And so there, there's your humility for you. You know, in other mm-hmm. words, he doesn't know why. He just has seen this thing work. And it right. never fails to work. And so what else do you want from me? So I, I think that that, you know, that kind of is another way to answer the question, like, Shrug your shoulders. Who can know the mind of a god? I mean that that would be another way to deal with a question like that. No, that is a good point, and because I I would not have initially ascribed, yeah, you know, because of Joe's uncertainty about the interpretation of dreams, I think of him. You know, humility isn't a word I immediately ascribe. <laughs> sure. But you are right that like in terms of the why does it happen this way, you know, his response is is to sort of to shrug but now now that i'm thinking through this and i i maybe we're not supposed to jump ahead this much but like thinking about how the conversation of these two dreams in tandem in this chapter that winterfell will fall mm-hmm. uh, that something you know a, a catastrophe is coming for winterfell and that bran and rickon will have their faces taken by this this person named reek knowing what happens in the first dream does sort of enable Brandon Rickon to escape the fate that they're maybe quote unquote supposed to suffer in the second dream. Hmm. And so even as they can't change those two things from happening, understanding the first in the context of the dream changes the meaning of the second. And so that's another interesting kind of space to play with in terms of why does this knowledge help if you can't change the content the ostensible subject of the dreams. Well, in this case, you know, it means that the Brandon Rickon he sees in the dream are not actually them. And maybe if not, if they didn't have this conversation or didn't have, weren't forewarned with these dreams, maybe they actually just would have been mm. killed. I, I don't know. But it's, yeah, it's, if you wanted it's to kind to of take the more, if you wanted to take the Jojen line on this, you could say, well, no, that, that happened. I, that happened exactly the way I saw it. Mm-hmm. I just, it, it just wasn't Brandon Rickon, right? Um, it, it could just be that, yeah, no, that was that that was going to happen, and it happened. I misread a few details, but the details happened. But your your point is a, is well taken because if Jojen is not sitting in that room telling him the dreams, there's no reason to leave Winterfell at all. That's right. Now I could imagine and- a sort of a parallel universe where you know Bran and Rickon do escape and they and then they are found and that does happen mm-hmm. to them I don't, I don't know if what that says about Theon if, if that's what happens but um you could imagine you could well imagine a situation where it is Bran and Rickon who, who yes. end up dying I don't know I mean 
But he doesn't even have the right reek, you know. <laughs> so anyway. Um, I'll tell you what. I, I have to be honest. That's one more piece of this. I could totally. I just, I don't need reek in my life. <laughs> I, that is not a character that, that needed to occupy my brain space or words on the page. That is one of those sort of extras mm. that's going around here where I'm like, I'm good. Yeah, no, good. I'll I'll push back on that a little bit. Like I usually take that view, but I it's a great example of Martin taking a character who's pretty much unlikable, completely unlikable. Yes. And then sort of twisting your, you know, manipulating the story enough that you actually start to feel sympathy for that person. And he does this with a few other characters too, right? But Theon's kind of the parade example of this, I feel like. Oh, man. (laughs) Maybe. I'll I'll go to maybe with you on that. Um, (laughs) I'll go to maybe. No, I think you you are 100% correct about Martin's ability to do that over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I would say someone like the hound is maybe like one of the best examples of that. How do um, you get Jamie, you know, you, you kind oh, of, yeah, yeah. you know, you kind of go back and forth with a few of these characters. Um, but uh, I, I do want to talk about uh, uh, wargs and wolves and skin changers and whatnot. Absolutely. What struck you as this phenomenon is described in this chapter? So it's really, really interesting to me because there is, again, there is an incredibly long history in Greco-Roman thought, Central Asian cultures, eventually in sort of Norse mythology, um, up through the Middle Ages, and then, of course, into the 19th and 20th centuries, about people changing into animals. And I'll I'll preface this by saying I know that's not exactly what's happening here. And among the animals, wolves reappear all of the time as the sort of this changing into. And so it's a fascinating sort of historical phenomenon in that sense. And then even you have someone like St. Augustine, who writes in the City of God that some men think they change into wolves, but they do not. Uh This is an illusory metamorphosis, right? This doesn't actually happen. It's basically a mental illness. Um, And so this idea of those, the dream state, in which we become something other than ourselves, like is a really fascinating, again, sort of mythological, literary, psychological phenomenon that's been documented for 2000 years. So I find that amazing. Right. But then, you know, Martin, as is his way, is putting a little bit, he's importing something else. The other parallel that came to mind is the idea of the witch's familiar. Oh, tell um, me this. So, so this is an idea, it's very, it's, largely associated with the English witch trials in the 16th and 17th centuries. But the idea that one of the marks of a witch is that they have an animal who is a physical manifestation of the demonic spirit that has sort of perverted them and taken them away from religious truth. Now, we have mentions of of familiars earlier on, but it becomes sort of a canonical part of witch trials in England and Scotland, um, in the British Isles, we'll say, like in the late 15th and late 16th and into the 17th century. And so this idea that women are and men are spotted with large toads, unusual dogs, they can be other animals, cats, obviously. But this idea that it's almost, again, like a projection of the witch's magical abilities and a visible reminder of their pact with the devil. 
so and interesting. so you have the familiar, right? And so and this is when called you think the about witch's familiar. The familiar, yes. And um, so it's just really, really interesting to me that, and I don't know if Martin sort of is reading up on his, you know, King James and uh, and his sort of demonological treatises, but again, this idea of the animal projection of a magic user's spirit combined with this long tradition of sort of uh, lycanthropy or people transforming into actual animals. Um, I just, it's a fascinating conjunction. And then as we learn more and more about this ability over the course of the books, and it becomes the sort of form of mind control in certain cases, it becomes even more expansive and interesting. And I just, once again, this is a, the book taking all of these diverse influences in and weaving them together into this really compelling kind of character trait, character in some sense, um, just by pulling all these threads together. I just, I really enjoy it. And I and I will admit when I was reading, sort of rereading this and thinking about the wargs, it sent me down an extremely deep kind of rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> of medieval lycanthropy and sort of what's a now, werewolf what the and, witches or were these animals were, were they influenced by the demon that possesses the animal or you know would they like do the witch's bidding or like how would this all work so it that's a good question it depends um it depends sometimes you do have the animals sort of accused of performing acts of maleficium you know the sort of evil magic as an agent of the witch uh, in some cases, in art, for instance, you'll see witches sometimes flying to the witches' sabbaths, these sort of nighttime nocturnal gatherings uh, on animals, some of which are identified as their familiars. That's more of a continental thing. That's very German. Uh, there are a lot of woodcuts from the 16th century mm. of this happening. Um, in other cases, though, it is almost as if the familiar is a reminder to the witch of the pact they've made. Uh, yeah, And so... It is almost as if, like, if you are, <laughs> if you are accused of witchcraft and you have a pet that's around you a lot, <laughs> that is that is almost like irrefutable evidence <laughs> of your of your witchiness. Um, particularly if you're keeping a pet frog, don't keep a pet frog in early 17th century England. That's my advice to everybody. It's um, really funny. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's interesting because again, like there are mentions of these kinds of things as early as like the 12th century, but it's only in the specific sort of legal culture and the way that precedents and sort of literature preserve memories of trials where familiar familiars are really an English thing. And England for the record is, is not a particularly intense witch hunting society in the early modern period, mm. relatively speaking, but it has very distinctive, you have these sort of regional subcultures of witchcraft. And so Whereas, you know, werewolves and werewolf beliefs are way more popular in sort of the Baltic regions is where you see a lot of a mm. lot of those sort of percolating. That makes sense. It's sort of a, a leftover in some ways from sort of, again, pre-Christian paganism in that region and, you know, Norse beliefs. There's a lot of wolves. And all right. Mythology. Before we get to uh, the wolves, because I, I love sorry. the wolves. At one point, Jojen's called Frog Boy. Yes. And I wonder... <laughs> like, is that a coincidence or is this sort of like a, a nod to this familiar toad situation? Oh, I don't. That would be that's funny. I 
I didn't read it that way because I mean, they're always, you know, Mira's got her frog spear and the idea that the reeds always eat frogs uh-huh. is these sort of marsh dwellers. I That's where I saw it. But listen, if, if we want to attach that sort of, you know, magical element to Jojen, and this is a, this is one piece of it. Sure. I'm, I'm more than well, happy. I'll, go, I'll do one meaning. more. I'll go one more inch out on my limb that's about to crack. Two chapters ago, Jojen asks or two brand chapters ago, Jojen asked, mm-hmm. do you ever dream of a lizard lion? And I always just thought oh. that was sort of like a crocodile or whatever. But that's sort of like, that was his first question to Bran uh, before he asked about the wolf thing. And it almost mm-hmm. seems, it seems like, well, in the Cranags, there, there are wargs, but they, they're, they're sort of the default for the warg is to go into some kind of like river creature. That makes sense. So anyway, interesting. No, and, and so but but that so that really then this idea of the sort of attachment that you have to particular kinds of animals to experience an affinity. I mean, that makes perfect sense that it would be this sort of distinctive creature. Yeah. And I and I think it's I forget when we when they talk about this, but the, also the idea of, you know, you you never want to sort of have an affinity with a prey animal. You want a predator. Oh, okay. You're... That brings us to wolves, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because you know, it, it would be easier to to link up with a dog, right? <laughs> so one and dogs are fine. One of the things but... that Brand thinks when you know he gets basically Jojen lays it all out, and he's like, "You're a warg." Some people call him beastling. Some people call him skin changers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're actually slipping into Summer's skin when you're sleeping. It really disturbs Bran. And the reason why it disturbs Bran is that wargs and all of the stories are evil. There, There's no yes. mythology of a warg being a good guy in Bran's mythology. So mm-hmm. that kind of reminded me like of the place that wolves are situated in Christian lore. I feel like, and I don't know if, I really don't know of any example where this is not true. The wolf is the devil's creature. Mm -hmm. Um, Like if you think of these medieval bestiaries, the wolf is as evil as the dragon. Uh, That that is is a devil in dog skin, that guy. No, I mean, I think you're right. The the wolf is definitely not a positive animal. Uh, Generally speaking, the only one, the only even vaguely positive story I can think of is St. Francis and the Wolf of Gubbio, I think. Is that the name of the oh, town? Oh, interesting. But but even in that, the problem is the wolf is a killer and is ravaging this town. But St. Francis, you know, goes out and speaks to it and basically transforms the wolf's behavior. So it becomes a protector instead of a ravager. But that's seen as, you know, a miraculous <laughs> inversion. Well, of it, its, it, of its it nature. proves this, it, but it also proves the, the, the pattern, right? Like if, if St. Francis can even convert a wolf. Exactly. So, um, that's interesting. And so I, so I think though, you know, the, the flip side of that is that even in Norse mythology, and this is far afield for me, but I was doing some research on it earlier today. It feels like there is a space for recognition that while wolves tend to have a destructive component, if you can channel that or somehow marry it to human nature or valor, it becomes incredibly powerful. And so this idea of, of warriors kind of channeling a wolf spirit or even putting on a wolf's pelt and transforming 
in the context of battle, it can be a good thing. But once again, that just confirms that wolves mm. are, you know, wolves are killers. And I think even in the realm, you know, obviously the word warg brings to mind Tolkien, right. where they're absolutely terrifying creatures. Um, I don't know. I, I know this is outside of canon for the series. Really, I think Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time is like one of the few literary exceptions or fantastic fantasy literary exceptions where wolves are good. Um, okay. But that's that's neither here nor there. I want uh, to take back what I said. Oh. All right. There's one story, The Werewolves of Ossery. Are you familiar with this? No, I don't okay. think I am. This is uh, comes from um, Irish lore. It's sort of in a travel narrative. So um, so I'm going to do this from memory. So there's this traveling priest, and he's, you know, he's going from town to town in Ireland, and he's doing the kinds of things priests do for people that don't have a church or a chapel in their village. Mm-hmm. You know, he's doing last rites. He's performing communion ceremonies, things like that. And he gets shipwrecked, and he, like, gets washed to the shores, and he's freezing cold, and he lights a fire, and a wolf comes up and starts talking with him. And the wolf says, oh. hey, don't, don't, don't be afraid. Um, I've been, a, I, you know, I, I was transformed into a wolf, and so was my wife, and I would love it if you would come give us Holy Communion, but you got to come back to our cave. And the priest is like, eh, I'm not doing that. And he's like, Look, I'll I'll take your I'll take a Catholic test. Like, give me a theology test. I'll prove that I'm Catholic. And he does. <laughs> he does, and he passes the test. And so the priest goes back to the cave, and the priest objects some more just to prove that he's really pious because wolves are the devil's creature. And then what ends up happening is, in order to prove that he was once he and his wife were once human. He like uses his wolf's claw and unzips, or you know, like like he makes a cut. He cuts his his the the she wolf's belly and flips over open the skin, and there's the the a human wife underneath the skin of the wolf. And oh. this proves to the priest that this isn't you know this isn't your normal wolves. These are unfortunate people who are turned into wolves somehow. And mm-hmm. he ends up performing last rites because uh, this this a woman is about to die, and then they ask him to perform holy communion, and he objects again. But he ends up doing that as well, and then he tells his superiors about this, and there's this council that is assembled to try to decide whether this priest did the right thing. And the moral of the story at the end of the day was like. Um, if Christ can turn water into wine, why couldn't a man turn into a wolf? Or so, it, was, it was something crazy like that. Um, anyway, uh, there's an example of two wolves who are pretty decent. They're they're just good Catholic people who had the unfortunate uh, werewolf curse. Why were I was going to ask? How did they get turned into wolves? I have to read. The, I have to go reread the story, but because I believe there are examples in classical literature. Of people turned into wolves for a period of time, like se- yeah, usually seven years. If they ate, seven, ate the wrong nine, meat or ten. something, Some, that's yeah. it. It, it. Usually for acts of uh-huh. you know, desecrating, desecrating graves, or sort of eating inappropriate foods. Right. And so, uh, who knows? Maybe they, maybe they, uh, they ate the consecrated host when they weren't supposed to, or swiped one from 
from the, the, the previous traveling priest. But that's really interesting. All right. I, I was just trying to reread some of the, the, <laughs> the original story here. I don't know if they talk about why they became wolves, but you, you, it's a very ancient problem. Right, <laughs> werewolves are a very ancient problem. Wolf transformation <laughs> um, is an issue throughout time, and different religious traditions have dealt with them differently. But I mean, even even in that story that I just told, sort of the end of it shows the default Catholic position. Correct. This is, you, you just dealt with like a demonic creature. You're not supposed to give mm-hmm. that person holy communion. Then. And I think what's interesting, though, is also, again, in the sort of Norse tradition, is that the wolf is very much a symbol of that, like, sort of liminal space between settlement and wilderness. Oh, that's fantastic. And it has that sort of spirit of of of, the, of wildness in it. And even if it's terrifying or scary or seen as a strong predator, you know, there's also the pack mentality. And there's a sense that they can be loyal and work together and, you know, bring down larger prey. And so the idea of, you know, the wolf as symbol of Winterfell, as symbol of the Starks, and Bran sort of embodying that in a way, even as sort of the weakest member of the pack, so to speak, because of his injury, mm-hmm. and becoming becoming something stronger, you know, that can protect, can contribute, I think is a is an interesting playing out of the North as this sort of liminal space, right, between the civilization of the South well, and the wildness. I, here's why I love that. It's because it's almost like, you know, if you want to press the metaphor, it's like before we had civilization, you know, before we had these castles and whatnot, the well, the only way to survive was sort of pack mentality. So it's almost like the mm-hmm. wolf pack represents uh, a previous era of dog-eat-dog existence. Yes. And then, of course, so... So you've got that anxiety, like we could always devolve. You know, we, we've got this wonderful civilization. We could always devolve into, you know, this is a lot of what zombie stories are about, you know. Um, yes. But and then, of course, if you if you take that a little bit further, you could say, well, yeah, in order for him to, like, open his third eye and find his wolf nature, he has to go off the edge of the the world. You know, he has to go beyond the wall. Civilization yes. is does not exist north of the wall in this mythology. So it's mm-hmm. almost like he's not just leaving the walls of Winterfell behind. He's leaving the walls, he's leaving the wall of civilization behind. Right, the world of men. And then if you think then back to Jojen as somebody else who shares these affinities, uh-huh. you know, they live in this marsh area. They don't build castles. Right. Um, they don't have any of those marks of civilization. They live in an internal wilderness. Yeah. And so perhaps they're the only people. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if you had like, if there was like some some, you know, nomadic desert people in Dorne with a strong, you know, warg tradition either. But it, it takes those unsettled places. Yeah, they are. the. I mean, the, the, the Kranich men are basically the most liminal of all of the houses yes. that we hear about, right? And yet... Like, also, the best of the houses, you know, the most loyal, the most true, right. yeah. um, in, in some ways. Yeah. So the, it's the a, least corrupted I, by the trappings of civilization. I'm really into the reeds. I can't lie. I, anytime they show up, like I, I, I do like their presence in the way they. Well, move. and you know what? I mean, I think that that's one of the main reasons people want to see the next book. It's like 
we want to see Howlin' Reed. You know, that's sort of like one of the, one <laughs> of the main things that we feel like we've missed. Yeah. And again, this is back to sort of in praise of Martin and making in very sneaky ways, making you care deeply mm. about things that either seem um, unlikable or unimportant. And, you know, if you fail to notice it the first time, thankfully there's Reddit and the second or third <laughs> reread um, where these things and like the way that it's built yeah. up from something's introduction all the way through its sort of culmination, there's always this process of layering and, you know, kind of seeing the pieces get slowly, slowly put together is, is, is a lot of fun. If, if only we had the next book. Notable introductions in this chapter. We hear about Ashmark, um, that it was formerly held by House Marbrand. Um, mm-hmm. We hear about several Frey uncles for the first time, but who cares? <laughs> yes. Like for all of the things, all the reasons we love the reads, the Freys are like, who who cares? Who cares? Um <laughs> Uh, we hear, oh, we meet Reek in the flesh for the first time, the original Reek. Um, Mm -hmm. and then of course, Benfred Tallhart. Um, departures, uh, goodbye, Severin Frey. We barely knew you. We barely knew you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I, I do, I do love where the, the phrase, the Frey boys are just like, Immediately, not important. Immediately, they go to well. All right, how does this change the line of succession? It's not even. They don't even take a beat to pretend like they're mourning the loss of their uncle. All right, differences with the show. Uh, No, no prophecy about Bran and Rickon being flayed or killed. Uh, There's none of this ale belly business. Uh, And it's it's Bran's and it's Bran's dream. There's no, I don't think that we have a mention of a, an original Reek in the show, or at least he doesn't come to Winterfell for sure. But yeah, and you're no. right. Like the, the, the ocean coming to Winterfell, that is Bran, right? That's not Jojen. It is. It is. And he's, and he's talking about it with Asha as he's mounting his horse in the courtyard. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised by that move, but at the same time, the whole conversation, which has been at the center of our conversation, isn't there. And yeah, this idea of really being not just confused by what a dream might be, but like shaken by what the truth of dreams means for us and, and what it means about our place in the world. So it, so I, I that was, I think, why I enjoyed this chapter more than I thought I would returning to it, because it's a weightier it's a much weightier sort of space to explore again, kind of like well, the realities of this world as constructed by Martin. That there were some people, not me, but there were some people who weren't happy with the whole hold the door thing with Hodor because the time stuff wasn't well established well enough earlier in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, in the books, of course, we're having this conversation pretty early in, in this. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I I noted that when Bran asks Asha, do you know how to get beyond the wall? She mm-hmm. says, well, it's easy. You look for the ice dragon and chase the blue eye of the blue rider. Star. Yeah, the blue star yeah. and the eye of the rider. 
which to me sounds like free folk have a constellation that they think of as an ice dragon. Mm-hmm. With a blue-eyed rider. With a blue-eyed rider. And we're talking about, you know, portents of the future and religion and whatnot. You know, one of the most ancient way to tell stories about the gods was to interpret the stars, right? That's right. Now, does this, of course, I mean, how can I not think that this portends the, the fall of the wall, the fall of the wall, the ice dragon with the, oh my the, gosh, the white walker point. with the blue eyes riding mm-hmm. on the back of the, I mean that I completely forgot about that detail. Yeah, no, I, and, and I will admit it did not even, I did not even start to process that until you just mentioned it. And I was like, oh, yes, all those details do match up. So it's it's one of these things where it's Almost like, exactly. um, I mean, George can drop these details and decide to do nothing with them, right? Correct. Um, at least the showrunners were inspired by this, I think. This can't, this, this can't be totally meaningless. I, I, that's my feeling. I don't think so. And this feels more like the idea of one of the dragons being taken and sort of converted into the White Walker dragon. That had to be part of the blueprint. Or it's too. I, okay, I don't know. Here's it another, here's another theory been... that throw at you. Mm-hmm. I think that there's like a fan theory that there's a there's like this mythology <laughs> that there's a a dragon that's in the wall. Like, mm-hmm. the, like there's actually a dragon in the ice that's that makes up the wall. Okay. And eventually that dragon will sort of be called forth by a great horn or something. And that's how the wall falls or something. But either way, we kind of have oh. an ice dragon. And so you can kind of see we the showrunners getting to the ice dragon in a different way. And also a way that kind of levels the playing field. It does. And it and it just makes for like it's visually spectacular and narratively efficient mm. answer to one of the really big questions, which is how are the how is the army of the dead gonna get past the wall? <laughs> right. right? I mean, because like that is that is you have to be thinking mm-hmm. about that. Um because they don't like water, you know, like, like there are limitations. And so what's it going to be? And they solve that problem. And so that's why I think the plans for the ice dragon were probably laid early because I mean, it's a, it's a staggering, shocking moment yeah. that resolves some big questions immediately in a delightful way. So, so I'm going to choose to believe <laughs> that this is this foreshadowing, dare we say prophecy <laughs> of the ice dragon. Yeah, and the fall of the wall is uh is the groundwork's being laid here. It's it's prophecies within dreams. You know, they're they're all right here in this chapter. Yeah, I mean, the, for for a you know for a character that maybe isn't a favorite in this book, this chapter did a lot of heavy lifting. It does, it does, and you know, I now I'm gonna feel guilty about saying that I don't <laughs> like Bran uh, at the very beginning, but I I I do think that this chapter does work. And I found it, again, just really interesting in the way it probes some of the sort of belief systems or the ideas about the way this world works and something like fortune or fate or providence or astrology, whatever you want it to be, um, the way it's sort of, if not predetermining, at least giving some hints of how things might unfold and the need for that for people. Um, and then the challenge that puts on some people, you know, if, if the portents can't be changed, 
Um, what are we even doing? In Great order question. to make this an interesting problem, you have to introduce limitations to interpretation. Yes. I mean, in, 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 in addition to all of the sort of philosophical stuff we were talking about, just in terms of storytelling, uh, you can't have one character that knows exactly what's going to happen in the future or else it ruins the story, right? Except we do ultimately end up there. <laughs> well, if you introduce, I guess, I guess in the hands of a lesser writer, that'd be a problem. There are no knights at Greywater. So um, when Mira used the net to trap Summer, Brands has never seen someone fight with a net before. How did you learn this from your master at arms? And she says, there's no knights at Greywater. So then this brings back to the thing about, um, that we discussed briefly earlier with Howland Reed. So Howland Reed is not a knight. And did Arthur Dane basically get trapped in a net and couldn't swing down? <laughs> I, was, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, technically... You know, Ned's not a knight, right? The North the North does not knight people in the way that Southern culture mm. knights people. But there's been so much sort of sort of hybridity between the cultures that mm. basically Ned has you know, he's he's functioning as a as a knight, basically, right? What's your lord though? It's a little bit different. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. Although even Ned's retainers, like Rory fights in the tournament, although he's not technically a knight, you know, mm. it, it's like, it's like these warriors up North do a lot of the things that knights do. And they, you know, they ride horses and they wear armor and whatnot. Um, they, they, they take, they take honor seriously and they've got a code, but the culture at Greywater is so isolationist. That there has not been, you know, you don't get the sense that someone like Howland Reed would fight in a tournament. Yeah. And it could be that Mira is actually quite powerful because, you know, you've never seen someone fight with a net before. How would a knight know how to fight against someone fighting with a net? Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, I, I, I mean, I can't imagine... <laughs> Imagine fighting with a net, and I, I can't imagine it, be, it being all that effective. But it does give you the sense that Mira can actually take down a dire wolf if she wants to. Yeah, and that that kind of gives us a little bit of hope for her ability to protect Bran up north. 